Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are rounding out 2021 here with a few final conversations with officials, experts, advocates at the New York City and state levels, talking about a wide variety of issues. Looking forward to today's conversation in just a moment. I'll be joined by Stephen Banks, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Social Services. Really looking forward to this conversation as Commissioner Banks joins us on the show again to reflect on his tenure, eight years working for the city of New York in the de Blasio administration, running the New York City Human Resources Administration, then expanding that scope to the Department of Social Services, bringing under that umbrella the, the, the Department of Homeless Services a lot to discuss with Stephen Banks here in just a moment. If you've missed any recent episodes of the show, please do find those at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts. We also, of course, have all the episodes at the Gotham Gazette website. have had a bunch of really interesting conversations recently with a wide variety of guests. I won't go into the whole list now, but some of the highlights have included all of the seven city council members or members elect who are seeking to become the speaker of the city council, including those who wind up being the finalists and the eventual winner, uh, which by at the point you may be listening to this, I think we'll have we might have a winner of that contest, but um, but we don't know that as the time of recording here. And also some really interesting discussions recently with United Federation of Teachers President Michael Mulgrew about the state of New York City schools, at least from his perspective and his union's perspective and their relationship with Mayor-elect Eric Adams and many others. Uh, so find those at Max Politics wherever you get your podcast or the Gotham Gazette site. All right, Stephen Banks, thank you for taking the time. Of course, good. Good to see see you. Hear from you. It's uh, you know been a been a long uh, time over all the years that we've been talking about these issues. So I'm happy to talk to you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm good to have. It's good to have the opportunity here. Obviously, issues under your purview uh, affect New York City's most vulnerable uh, people. That Mayor De Blasio, of course, uh, was promising uh, to focus on helping coming into office. Obviously. Uh, New Yorkers who you've dedicated your career to helping outside of government and then in government. Um, so so let's dig into where things stand here as uh, you conclude these eight years of city government service. So uh, a lot of the focus on your work has, of course, uh, revolved in recent years around the city's homelessness uh, crisis. Let's put that um, on hold for just a second. And let's talk about the Human Resources Administration, HRA, where you began your your service here where the mayor first appointed you as you reflect here on eight years uh hra working with millions of new yorkers over that time what has changed under your tenure in terms of how uh the human resources administration helps new yorkers in need uh thanks for that uh for that opening uh because everything it really puts in context the the reality that hra the human resources administration serves three million people a year uh which i think highlights the volume uh, or the extent of the need in in the city 
uh, I think the most significant things that we uh, set out to do, uh, always much more work to be done, but there are some significant changes that we have made uh, that I think really have benefited people. Uh, the first, I think, was taking the approach that we wanted to help people and we wanted people to actually get their benefits. Uh, and so uh, we focused uh, taking, on taking down the kind of punitive apparatus uh, that made it very difficult for people to get benefits. Now, benefits are are uh, highly regulated by the federal and state government, so uh, we couldn't write with a blank slate. Uh, with fair fares, for example, we were able to make it very simple, just submit certain financial documents, uh, and uh, you, we could give you, the, give you the benefit. In contrast to federal SNAP or food stamps or Medicaid uh, and cash assistance, which is highly regulated. But what we could do is to say, uh, let's not make it so miserable to get help you know, the old English poor laws where if you make it miserable enough, people won't seek help. And that was for much of the modern approach to the provision of public assistance. So what did we do? We said, look, one of the fundamentals was don't make people have to wait in offices. Right, Ben, you and I do our banking online. You don't you rarely go to a teller, I'm assuming. I, I really mm -hmm. do, too. Uh, and so why couldn't our clients have that same opportunity, not a requirement, but an opportunity to do business online, therefore providing an opportunity for people that needed more help who wanted to come into an office, uh, wouldn't be overcrowded, uh, the, 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 the workers, the staff would be able to focus on more complicated cases. And so right off the bat, we were able to get a series of federal and state waivers and made it possible for you to apply and uh, be recertified for uh, SNAP food stamps online by telephone on demand, not waiting for us to call you, but you could determine when you would call and you could do your business by telephone and online. And in fact, you could use your smartphone, which the vast majority of our clients have. But again, you still could come into one of our offices. Cash assistance, we wanted to transform in the same way. Uh, we, we, we ran into that little obstacle called state approval. Uh, and uh, we were unable to do that until the pandemic hit. And then we were granted uh, the waivers that we had been requesting uh, to be able to provide cash assistance in that same way. You know, before the pandemic, if you went into one of our centers on the on the food stamp side of the building, like the sun was shining, you know, waiting rooms not crowded, people who really needed personal help were there, cash assistance, dark clouds, a lot of people in the waiting rooms. And so we pivoted right away when we got that waiver to uh, extend the ability to apply online and by telephone. And now that waiver has been made permanent by a state law. We also eliminated the WEP program. That was one of the first things, the work experience program, which was the theory was you had to work off your benefits, uh, but it wasn't a career pathway out of poverty. Uh, and so we said, you know what, let's look at some other states that had done some, some progressive things. Ironically, we looked at like Kentucky and Texas, where they put a, a, a greater emphasis on education and training. Uh, and so we revamped the approach uh, and, and that made it more possible for people to have a career uh, pathway off of public assistance. And uh, by eliminating the punitive approach, we cut the number of fair hearings, the typical thing where a client contests what the agency did. We cut that in half. We were facing a $10 million state penalty for unnecessary fair hearings. Uh, and we were able to avoid that by all of the things that we put in place. We closed this center called Center 71, uh, 
This is a place where they they used to make you go for an appointment literally every day if you were in sanction status. And inevitably, if you missed one day, then your whole case would be closed. We closed that right away. We repurposed it into a place where you could get emergency rental assistance issued uh, because we did at, at the very beginning of my time, we did a study that showed there was an association between public assistance case closings and people applying for shelter. Uh, so that's the range of the kinds of changes uh, that we made. We also got a state law passed. You might remember we talked about this before about sanctions. It used to be if you violated some provision of the federal and state rules, you'd essentially get a determinate sentence of being without your benefits. And we went to the state legislature and got a, a, a law passed or an amendment to the existing law that made it possible if you said, you know what, I, I, I missed my appointment. I, want, I, I do want to participate in these programs uh, and we could we can then reopen your case rather than have to say you can't get any help for for uh, for weeks on end uh, so uh, really a, a tremendous transformation but still a work in progress because we just got the the, the permanency of the ability to apply uh, online uh, for cash assistance and we have to make that permanent and build it out so you can call uh, uh, at your convenience rather than wait for us to call you so more work to be done but definitely definitely a different trajectory than the one that that we confronted uh, thank you for that overview. Let me let me ask you a couple of questions of, about some of the specifics there. I did want to um, ask you more about uh, cash assistance, the work experience program, the the changes there. What is very often in just uh, uh, colloquially referred to as welfare. It's a, it's remarkable. I think just the limited amount that this gets discussed, uh, as far as I can tell, in sort of public policy discussions. Uh, the election that we just had for the next mayor and city council and so forth. But um, how, what are the results of that? I understand the pandemic and all of its issues and unemployment and the eviction moratorium. It it makes so much of this such a funky discussion uh, for lack of a better term, but where do the results of those reforms stand? Have you been able to help reduce those, um, you know, quote unquote, welfare roles? Has it had, had, were you able to have the impact you wanted to at least pre-pandemic? Were you seeing results from that? So let's, let, that's a good way to look at it. And let's divide it into pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So right. when mil- millions of jobs are lost yeah. Uh, yeah. within weeks, it's, it's a little difficult. Yeah. So pre-pandemic, the projections, if you went back and read some of the things that were written when, when, Bill de Blasio appointed me the HRA commissioner. It was sort of like, the, you know, there'll be a million people on public assistance. There goes, you know, uh, uh, all the things that people describe as welfare reform. And doomsday was predicted. And I said all along, look, if you if you sort of measure the people on public assistance in any given month. It's artificially low because if you sanction people, if you cut off their cases and you depend on this churning effect of people uh, being cut off, uh, requesting a state fair hearing, being put back on, the monthly number is deceptive. What you have to look at is the annual number. And I said, look, the annual number is actually not going to go up. It might even come down slightly because we're going to have more supportive programs for people. And that's exactly what happened. The monthly number went up. But it wasn't a, an absolute number. It was just if the churning stopped, uh, the monthly number went up, but the the annual number uh, uh, actually went down. Uh, and 
you know, the, from a staff perspective, when I first came, I said, you know, this doesn't make any sense for a frontline worker to have to close somebody's case. Then they come back in, then they have to reopen the case. Think of all the double work. So it's bad for clients, it's bad for staff. Uh, and that's why we made that change. So before the pandemic, we were seeing uh, not this, you know, predicted parade of horribles, but actually uh, a, a, a decrease in the numbers of people uh, needing uh, ongoing assistance. What we always saw though, was an increase in the numbers of people needing rent assistance because mm -hmm. of the housing crisis. And so when I first came, the, the agency was paying uh, in 2013 about $125 million in rent arrears. Pre-pandemic, it was it was $250 million in rent arrears. Why? Because I looked at the association between if you don't pay someone's rent arrears, you end up uh, that person in shelter. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you viewed it as an entitlement rather than kind of noblesse oblige about paying rent arrears, uh, you, you ended up with more people getting the benefit and you could see it with the drop in evictions along with the right to counsel. During the pandemic, uh, we saw historic increases in applications for cash assistance and for uh, SNAP food stamps. Uh, and the way we were able to manage that, though, was because we had the ability already for SNAP uh, and food stamps for you to be able to apply online and, and, and have telephone interviews. We also got waivers that allowed us to, to uh, minimize the number of interviews that had to be done. And then we pivoted. Uh, the cash program to a similar online telephone system. Uh, and, and so we were able to manage this historic increase. Underneath all this surface, maybe for another show, I could tell you, we had to take our staff and, and create a way for them to serve clients from their homes. Uh, we kept uh, you know the key offices open in each borough for those clients that absolutely needed to come in, but we wanted people to be safe. So you know we got thousands of laptops from Do It. We created like a laptop assembly line and provisioned them, delivered them to staff in their homes, and we were able to continue to operate and provide benefits to these historic numbers of people that have been applying. You're right. You don't read about that in the papers anyplace because we succeeded. And I think it's something that you and I have talked about over time. Sometimes the, things that are working don't get focused on as much as things that are not working. Sure, sure. The um, the just to continue on this issue of the cash assistance and reforms and work requirements versus education and training. Big picture as you zoom out here after these eight years, um, what needs to happen in your view in terms of this combination of um, people who are able to work, uh, want to work, um, but you know have have not been able to find employment or have other circumstances that that lead them to HRA and lead them to cash assistance. Um, hundreds of thousands of people on a on a monthly basis. Um, what needs to happen to reduce that number as much as possible in the future? Is that a matter of um, the workforce development ecosystem, which includes, of course, our education system, uh, you know, 3K through 12 and into the, the CUNY system? Um, and, and are there HRA elements um, to it that you think could be taken to the next level? A, a great question. I think there's a couple of factors that are going on here. Let, let's also not forget that we have more people on uh, on, on uh, uh, Medicaid 
or receiving Medicaid or and receiving food stamps SNAP than on cash assistance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I talk about 3 million people, that's largely made up of the recipients of, of uh, federal food stamps and uh, or SNAP uh, benefits as they're now called and Medicaid. And that's because in some respects, uh, both Medicaid and SNAP are work supports. Uh, because of the inadequacy of wages and the challenges of, of health insurance uh, in, in, in the marketplace, notwithstanding uh, Obamacare. So I think one of the reflections is, you know, are people going to be paid a, a living wage and then they don't need to receive uh, food stamps uh, or they don't need to receive Medicaid? In terms of cash assistance, you know, significant numbers of people on our, uh, on our caseload uh, are actually working. Uh, but they're not earning enough to get themselves uh, 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 to be able to, to no longer need cash assistance. There are also large numbers of people in our caseload who are children. Uh, when you look at that number, the, the majority of people in our cash assistance caseload are actually children in households yeah, right. living in poverty. So I think it has a lot to do with living wage, has a lot to do with housing costs, has a lot to do with health care, and has a lot to do with uh, uh, the challenges that uh, our clients experience in the local economy. There's many, uh, many undocumented uh, New Yorkers, as we all know. Uh, how has, if if in any ways, uh, the Human Resources Administration and maybe working with other agencies um, been able to to help undocumented New Yorkers who've who've struggled uh, pre-pandemic or during the pandemic? Um, obviously, as you said, there's often uh, federal uh, challenges to doing many things you want to do. Um, and I assume that also includes helping undocumented immigrants and New Yorkers uh, in some ways. But are there ways where you've been able to um, improve the ways that HRA helps uh, undocumented New Yorkers? I, I think there's a several uh, uh, areas of progress. Obviously, the big overhang here is federal immigration policy and the unfairness and the punitiveness of it. Uh, but where we can, uh, we've developed local programs that I think uh, certainly help uh, uh, undocumented New Yorkers. IDNYC is a program that's run by, uh, uh, you know, in partnership between HRA and uh, the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. We're actually the operational arm of it, running it. So. Uh, the idea that uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, have an ID that they couldn't have gotten any other way uh, is a key part of participating in in, in the, the life of the city. Uh, second of all, uh, Fair Fares, which is a totally city program, we provide irrespective of immigration status. We provide shelter irrespective of immigration status. And of course, we have benefits where while there may be, if there's uh, children uh, or others in the household, uh, that uh, are not undocumented, we're able to provide assistance to at least part of the household. Uh, there's an interesting thing, though, that, I, that I've highlighted in other contexts, which is that under federal law, uh, you're not allowed to give ongoing benefits to somebody who's uh, uh, undocumented. But you, the state is allowed to pass a law that enables you to give greater benefits uh, uh, to people as long as it's state or local assistance. Interestingly enough, Florida, California, Texas have all passed laws that enable this type of assistance. New York is not yet, although the Excluded Workers Fund, I think, is a step forward. Of course, in addition, in New York City, uh, not provided by HRA, 
we have uh, access to healthcare for people, uh, irrespective of undocumented status through H&H. Uh, we also have the legal services programs that HRA does run in partnership with Moya Action NYC and uh, Immigrant Opportunities Initiative. We would provide a hotline for anybody who needs help uh, determining whether or not they can have a pathway towards permanent residency or citizenship. And we represent people, we provide representation uh, through our legal services partners to represent people in deportation uh, proceedings as well. Frequently, those were uh, critical uh, services that we provided during the Trump years uh, with a very punitive approach to, uh, uh, to people who are undocumented. As we sort of segue to, and there, there's, of course, a, a deep relationship between the Human Resources Administration and the Department of Homeless Services, and in, in many ways, bringing them under your umbrella as you did uh, a few years into the de Blasio administration, and and you've been running that as Department of Social Services since, makes a lot of sense. Um, Just on the pieces that we've mostly discussed so far, which is sort of um, access to public benefits for the millions of New Yorkers who currently receive them, others who who will need them uh, inevitably, as you reflect on your time here and look to hand off to the next administration, are there is there a sort of next big step? Is there a project that you either have just started or wanted to start that you are encouraging the uh, incoming Adams administration to to take on? Well, I think there's a couple. One is uh, now that we have gotten uh, a permanent state law that allows us to put the cash assistance program on the same footing that we had the food stamp SNAP program, we have to continue building it out. I mean, we put it together with bubble gum and Band-Aids uh, in the midst of a pandemic, and we're running it very effectively because we managed the you know historic increases in cash assistance uh, applications. But we want to put it on the same platform that we have with uh, SNAP and food stamps, where again, you can determine when you want to have an interview with us uh, as opposed to waiting for us to call you. Uh, and there are other improvements that we can make in terms of our online assistance and cash assistance. But that's underway. Uh, and I, I have every reason to believe that continued access to benefits is a priority for the incoming mayor. Uh, and so I know this will continue. But one of the things that I know is a frustration for him, it's a frustration to me, and most importantly, it's a frustration to our clients, which is the idea that there are so many systems that exist uh, where they know a little bit about you. Uh, and there isn't sort of, you know, when we applied to college, uh, it was the, uh, it was a little <laughs> after my time, maybe it was my the children common, applied yeah. to college, the common app was when yeah. my kids applied yeah. to college. And so the idea that one age, like I, I, when I first uh, came as the commissioner, I worked with Robin Hood uh, because we said to ourselves, you know, there are a lot of people getting Medicaid, seniors getting Medicaid, who are not getting food stamps. Wouldn't it make sense to be able to, to, to when someone applies for uh, Medicaid to automatically, because you know what, that they're eligible, automatically be able to offer them. They could opt out, but you could automatically offer them food stamps without having them to go through a separate application process for that. That's going to require a super waiver at the state level and the federal level. But I think, you know, from all the discussion about digital wallets and my benefits and the kinds of things that I know the mayor's talking about, I think that's a frontier that I think is really important to cross. Uh, And I think that uh, the agency is certainly positioned to be able to do that and and work with the mayor's vision of, of greater access to benefits uh, by, in part, 
consolidating access to benefits rather than what we have now, which is much better access than we have had before to our benefits uh, that we can administer directly, but still these sort of state and federal barriers to to making it easier uh, to make eligibility determinations. If you know what your income is because you're in the housing authority, uh, why couldn't you be eligible to get uh, food stamps uh, or, or offer the opportunity to get food stamps because you already know the, what your income is rather than have to go and apply somewhere else? Right. And, and the, um, you know, it's, it's often there's a, a couple of, you know, sort of cliche lines about how expensive it is to be poor, uh, how much work it is to be poor. I mean, we're, you know, these are some of the things that we're getting at here with some of the reforms you're talking about and some of the things that Eric Adams wants to do, which is, you know, reducing the inefficiency and stopping people from having, you know, who could be uh, continuing their education, caring for their children, uh, applying for jobs, whatever it might be having to, you know, fill out a million applications, go to certain things in person that should be able to be done online, et cetera. Um, I'll just take a brief moment here to, to plug an article we reported in Gotham Gazette that looks at some of what Mayor-elect Eric Adams has promised in terms of trying to streamline how government works and digitize things and create more um, intergovernmental uh, communication and such. And, you know, there's there's some big promises there and some serious challenges. And we outlined those in a in an article recently. Um, so way, I, I should just add a, a, sure. a, that in all of this, one of the things we had to be very focused on was although the vast majority of our clients can manage uh, uh, online applications, uh, you know, all these uh, IVRS kind of telephone systems and things like that and could uh, and have smartphones uh, during the pandemic, we got and would like to make them permanent. We got waivers to allow our staff to take over the phone uh, uh, the application without requiring an actual signature. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'd like to make that kind of thing permanent so that for uh, people who have challenges with technology, they have the same access to benefits that everybody else does. Of course, they could still come into one of our centers. But if our whole approach is to, to make it possible for you not to have to uh, experience our services by going someplace, skip the trip, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to we want to we, we make sure that uh, that's an additional uh, thing that's available for people. So there are major pieces of um, access to public benefits <laughs> that uh, HRA runs that relate. I mean, all of it really relates to homelessness, whether people are able to afford a roof over their heads uh, in so many ways but also some very direct uh, housing-related uh, benefits, including uh, one-shot rent arrears payments and including, of course, the right to counsel that developed over the course of, of the last eight years um, and other pieces. So uh, speak a little bit about the changes that have occurred there and especially in terms of efforts to prevent homelessness where that stands and and what comes next on that on that front. Great question. I mean, look, I, I came into, uh, you know, I came to HRA from the Legal Aid Society, 
you know, we had worked on improving access to criminal defense services by uh, by getting uh, a criminal defense case cap put in place, and similar with children, lawyers for children in uh, family court. Uh, and but but the unfairness of you're going to lose your home and you don't have a lawyer uh, was something that uh, that was a really critical uh, priority of mine to focus on when I when I came into government. Uh, at the very beginning of the administration, <clears throat> the mayor consolidated these sort of disparate uh, tenant legal assistance programs and other kind of legal assistance programs, predominantly for immigrants at HRA. It made sense to have it in one place rather than all around. Uh, we were the, the, the city in 2013 was providing six million dollars in uh, in legal services funding for tenants. Uh, and this year, the annual budget is one hundred and sixty six million dollars. Uh, we got there not you know in one stroke, but by coming in at the beginning and piloting the expansion of access to, to counsel and showing that it could make a difference in leveling the playing field in housing court, keeping people in their homes, not having to go to shelter. Uh, and ultimately that resulted in the first in, in the nation right to counsel law. Uh, and the numbers are the numbers. You see a 41% decrease in evictions by marshals pre-pandemic, uh, while evictions were up all across the country. And as we come up to the expiration of the eviction moratorium, the fact that we have lawyers who can uh, represent people is a critical set of services that other places don't have that puts us in a place to be able to really try to meet people's needs. I talked to you about the payment of rent arrears, which is something we also looked at. And if you looked at it as you know, sort of like almost charity, even though we're a government agency, rather than understanding it's an entitlement for people to get their rent paid if they're facing eviction and they meet the eligibility criteria. And so the combination of being hyper-focused on preventing homelessness wherever you can, uh, this is, you know, we're going to get to it, so I might as well jump into it. This is how we came to the place of uh, reintegrating the two agencies. Uh, you know, back in 1993, 1994, when the agencies were separated, there were, you know, Local 371, Charles Ensley, uh, uh, Mary Brazahan from the Coalition for the Homeless, myself on behalf of the Legal Aid Society, we all said, if you create a freestanding agency that it would sort of institutionalize the approach and all the other players that have tools to address homelessness would not be uh, not not uh, have a role because they would see it as it's up to that one agency to deal with uh, the fact that uh, homelessness is produced by systemic failures that go on for many, many years across many different systems. And if you created just a freestanding agency, uh, the rest of the systems would would uh, uh, not have an investment in preventing homelessness, HRA being a primary one. HRA had all the tools to prevent homelessness. It could have funded lawyers. It could provide rent arrears. Uh, and at the end of the day, I've said this a lot, if you're the commissioner and you're thinking about managing your caseload, a case closing is a case closing. If you're the commissioner and you're thinking about you know, providing services to people and if someone gets their case closed, they might apply for shelter, you might look at it differently. And I, I think that uh, the proof was in the data. Between 1994 and, and 2014, 
the DHS shelter census went up 115% when it was a freestanding agency. Now, there are many factors that contributed to that, but having a freestanding agency didn't reduce the shelter census. On the other hand, in the time that we've integrated the agencies, the shelter census actually has come down. It's still higher than if you had interviewed me nine years ago, I would have said, Mm -hmm. you know, 46,000 people is, is, we have to do better than that. I still believe that. Uh, But we've, we've driven it down from uh, a much higher place, even higher. It was higher when the mayor came in, went higher as I predicted it would. Uh, And then when the investments kicked in, it began to come down. So I think the integration of the key two agencies was sort of integral uh, to uh, taking a a more comprehensive approach to homelessness rather than having it just be sort of one agency alone trying to deal with this uh, uh, social problem. In that vein, and as we think about a new administration coming in, changes in deputy mayor structure and all these different things, uh, and what you're getting at is a structural issue that is about government working better. Uh, There's also, you know, sort of uh, in the continuum, there's the city's housing agencies, right? There's um, HPD, there is NYCHA, which is not exactly a city agency, obviously, um, but the housing authority. Uh, for better or worse, uh, largely the mayor's responsibility at this point. Um, How do you think about better integrating the work you've been doing with the work being done by the people that are the, you know, sort of quote unquote housing people? Um, Are there ways to do that better? There's been a lot of discussion during the, the Blasio years about the city's affordable housing plan, not really lining up that well with reducing the city's homeless population. There's been adjustments made on that front. The mayor's talked about that quite a bit. Um, But where do you see that sort of continuum standing? And obviously you can't keep combining agencies, you know, then then you you wind up with the behemoths. But um, where is that at? And how do you think about coordinating the work you've been doing with the the quote unquote housing agencies? So so, uh, also a great question. So let me you know, lay out a couple of of, uh, of metrics here, and then and then some things that I think would be helpful going forward. So, you know, I think it's been reported that we we through our various social services programs uh, have been able to connect 180,000 people, or almost 180,000 people, to to permanent housing. Uh, about 150,000 or so people moved out of shelter, uh, about 30,000 or so people kept in their homes through various of our rental assistance programs in particular. Uh, but then there's still you know, 46,000 people in in the DHS shelter census. I mean, it, it was 53 the month of the mayor became the mayor. It went up to 61 uh, with the continued uh, impact of the Advantage program. Uh, OMB said it was going to go up to 71 if we didn't do the investments. And now it's back down to 46, a trend that had begun before the pandemic, principally related to the cluster conversions that we had done. Uh, but the fact that that many people have been connected to permanent housing and that many people are still in shelter, albeit less than had been, uh, really highlights the, the the reality of what produces homelessness. No matter what the other factors might be, the lack of housing is what produces the condition of homelessness uh, and, 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 and therefore it's integral to a s- solution. So 
we thought it was important uh, at the Department of Social Services that we had to build housing, uh, develop housing programs that had been taken down by the prior administration, predominantly rental assistance, but also master leasing and things like we did when we converted the clusters uh, and working with HPD on that as well. But I think going forward, uh, we're in a once in a generation opportunity. Uh, which is, uh, frankly, Mayor Adams, uh, Mayor-elect Adams' plan uh, to convert some uh, a significant number of hotel rooms uh, to uh, permanent housing, uh, predominantly permanent supportive housing. You know, we've given, we've connected 16,000 people to supportive housing during the course of the administration, but there's still such a greater need. And so when we talk about housing need, if you look at the people in our DHS shelters, you can see two different trends happening. Family trends, family part of the census is really what's driven the decrease because there are 17,000 fewer family members in shelter uh, than there than there were in 2014. It was 43,000, now it's down to about 26,000 or so. But the single adults in the system are at a record number. Uh, and that's being driven in part, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked over the years about deinstitutionalization, uh, th th that was a factor in the, the beginning of modern mass homelessness in the 1980s. Uh, great policy, get people out of those horrible places, but the promise of community-based care wasn't there. Uh, and that resulted in people ending up in shelter and, and prisons. And now we have decarceration also progressive, important policy, but people are coming out and ending up in a prison to shelter pipeline directly from state facilities, for example. And that's why I think the, the, this next uh, uh, focus of a once in a generation opportunity of taking advantage of these empty hotel rooms. And unlike a lot of things that you covered and that I worked on, we were people were taking SROs in Manhattan predominantly and turning them into luxury housing, taking housing away from this population that needed it so desperately. Now we have the opportunity to take advantage of the economic downturn impact on, on these uh, hotels and be able to turn them back into housing. And that will really begin to drive the number of single adults in shelter down uh, particularly addressing those who are uh, getting the benefit of decarceration without the benefit of, of getting housing. So your question about what could, you know, where have we been and where are we going? Uh, you know, the numbers, you can see where, what we've been able to do, but I think we have a really key moment here. And, you know, to have a mayor talking about taking advantage of this moment, I think is really important. Two, two follow-ups on that. One, um, has the city combined with partners, of course, but has the city, um, is it is it really possible to say that the city has done anything other than and then failed on um, services for and and protecting the people themselves and the people they hurt for those with serious mental illness who have uh, violent uh, tendencies Um you know, your point about deinstitutionalization, very well taken. Um, your point about deincarceration, very well taken. If I remember correctly, the last time we spoke at, you know, in, at length about uh, some of these issues was a couple of years ago. And, and we, you know, talked about some of the same things. And yet I don't, I don't know that there's been any appreciable difference uh, in terms of, of how this very vulnerable and at times, at times, a small percentage of dangerous population has been helped. Well, I think, you know, you, you sort of put your finger on an, an important aspect of this, which is uh, 
you know, is it one level of government's ability to deal with this, or is it really a, a, a three? Uh, uh, three levels of government, all hands on deck. And I think that's something that's been missing. Look, I, I, we've talked about what I thought has been missing in 40 years of homeless policy, which is actually have a comprehensive plan. Uh, pre prevention, permanent housing, decent shelter, you know, we've closed 200 and I guess now it's almost 300 shelter sites and cited a smaller number of shelters, shrinking the footprint of the shelter system. And, you know, a new administration can, you know, build on that but at least there's a there's an operating plan of how to provide permanent uh, how to provide homeless services prevention permanent housing decent shelter you don't need a, a big sprawling system it can be a more uh, organized system around you know where people actually come from the anchors of their lives similar to what you're talking about you've got a federal and state and local responsibilities and at the end of the day, it's always the, the the lowest person on the food chain, the local government, which is left to deal with it. But it kind of starts with uh, the things that you and I have talked about over the years, which is federal housing assistance. It's kind of crazy that, um, you know, I... I'm lucky enough to own my home and I have an entitlement to federal housing assistance through the mortgage uh, uh, deduction. Uh, but my clients who don't own their homes have no federal entitle entitlement to federal housing assistance because Section 8 is not an entitlement. Only about 20 plus percent of the people eligible for it get it. So that's one place. And then there are things, Richie Torres's bill, for example, there are things that are moving in the Congress to try to address that. At the state level, I mean, frankly, you know this, we haven't had a state partner for the last eight years. We had a state adversary. Uh, and I think the uh, Governor Hockle signing the the uh, FEPS uh, state, uh, increasing the, the FEPS uh, allowance uh, just uh, last week is a step in the right direction. This was something, you know, I said it publicly. My first uh, month in, in, as a commissioner in 2014, I asked the state to increase uh, the state FEPS allowance to, to be connected to uh, uh, the HUD fair market rent. So you had one rent level, both for Section 8 and for state FEPS. And uh, uh, it, my last month, she signs the bill, but that's a sea change, you know, in terms of uh, state leadership. So I'm hopeful that, you know, with the with, with the way that Biden administration and, and, the, and certain people in Congress are looking at the housing needs of our clients, the state now with the FEPS bill uh, and the new mayor coming in, that we can see some of the progress that, that you are highlighting what some of the challenges have been the last couple mm -hmm. of years. Whether it's on um, services for uh, people um, dealing with serious mental illness, whether it's for people leaving incarceration, whether it's for um, uh, the single adult population that you're talking about that has been growing in, in homeless shelters, um, what, are, what are things that you've pushed for that you haven't been able to get to either any degree or the degree that you want in city government that you're encouraging in this transition, the next city government to take on? Is it certain set-asides? Is it um, an adjustment of that uh, viewpoint on affordable housing where we've heard the mayor many times say, I have very much wanted an affordable housing plan for a wide variety of incomes. We have to have civil servants be able to afford affordable housing. You know what he said, uh, and I think many of our listeners here do as well, and push back a lot that the, on the idea that comes from a lot of people that you've worked with over many years, that the affordable housing plan really needed to be much more heavily focused on people with the lowest 
incomes and the biggest needs. And he has resisted that, although he's moved it somewhat in that direction. Is that the number one thing? Are there other things? Um, what's the sort of Steve Banks final days of, of your tenure here? Advice for the next administration, the big the big pieces that are the next frontier that we haven't talked about yet. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm leaving government, returning back to the practice of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always thought in order to deal with uh, and effectively address homelessness, you needed a combination of prevention. So now we have a right to counsel as a way to prevent homelessness. You know, when I was a legal aid lawyer, you walk into the courtroom and every landlord's got a lawyer and I'm there representing a handful of people in this room. That's not fairness. And we're seeing the result of that. Uh, I thought you needed a right to shelter. So you don't have our streets in New York as challenging as they can be sometimes. They don't look like Los Angeles where there's no right to shelter in in California. And you see West Coast homelessness very different than uh, New York City uh, and East Coast homelessness. Uh, But I think the next frontier, frankly, is the right to housing. Uh, And uh, stay tuned. (laughs) And just quickly, I'm going to let you I'm going to let you go in two more minutes. But um, what is it? What does that look like? I mean, you know, the, one of the funny things that I've been really trying to talk through and think through with people is sort of the definition of a progressive vision of of housing and housing abundance and the idea, which freaks a lot of people out, that New York City would get to a point where there's no more uh, housing emergency. Right. There's there's so much housing (laughs) that that rent regulations, maybe, you know, I mean, again, we don't want to touch that third rail at the moment. But this idea of, quote unquote, housing abundance, that there's enough housing where vacancy rates are actually higher and 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 there's just housing for people. Um, What does a right to housing really mean and look like uh, in this in this vision? And I know you said stay tuned, but but, you know, give us a little inkling of what that really means. And is Steve Banks now someone who's saying to uh, Eric Adams and others, build, baby, build, like just build a lot more housing, make sure it's done in the right way. But we need more housing in New York City. Uh, Say a little bit more about that. I mean, nobody from any uh, uh, vantage point, no matter what your party affiliation is, no matter what your philosophy is, would ever say that New York City doesn't need more housing. That's that's critically important. Um, you know, I was at a very rough community meeting uh, in a part of the city that you could probably guess where somebody said, you and de Blasio are such dopes. You should do what LaGuardia did and build public housing. And it was during the Trump administration. And I said, you know, uh, LaGuardia had Roosevelt. Look who we got. So are the the sun and the moon and the stars potentially aligning with federal, state, and local policy? You know, I know we can dwell upon the midterms and all the, you know, what's coming and the elections we just had. But I feel like I've always felt like, look, I'm an optimist. I was a legal aid lawyer for 33 years. I I wanted to be the HRA commissioner. Then I wanted to be both the HRA and the DHS commissioner. So I must be an optimist by nature. Uh, uh, You know, the the, the arc of history is bending uh, towards uh, a place where we don't have people that don't have a roof over their heads. It's going to require a combination of federal, state and local collaboration. 
uh, and I can see see some positive signs on on the horizon, even though if I come to work every day, I see a lot of suffering, no matter how our reforms have have made uh, such an impact on you know tens of thousands of people, uh, they're still suffering every day. And uh, but I, I I remain hopeful that uh, there are solutions the government can bring to bear. I'm leaving government because I also know that sometimes uh, uh, government needs a little push to bring those solutions to bear. And that's the benefit of uh, having a law degree and practicing law. And I'm looking forward to practicing law at Paul Weiss and being able to bring to bear uh, the full force of the law to help people. And 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 we'll get more of a sense of, of what a right to housing could, could potentially mean in New York City. All right, last question, Steve Banks. You have this vast decades of experience, legal aid uh, into city government now. Uh, you seem to have a lot of answers. You seem to have made a lot of progress in many ways. Um, we've talked about some of the ways where progress has been hard to come by. But um, what's something you didn't realize? What's something you you didn't realize until you got into government that has been a big awakening for you in this last eight years, what's something that was a sort of big aha moment about about actually being in, uh, you know, you'd been sort of pushing and suing and prodding and such for decades. And then you got in, uh, what's something that was a big realization for you really being on the inside in our, in our final minute here. So, so here's an interesting thing that I can only answer your question by telling a story. So, uh, uh, Brad Lander, soon to be our controller, uh, my council member, uh, probably a couple of months in said to me, it must be so frustrating for you to be in government because things move so slowly. And I said, you must be kidding me compared to how long it takes to litigate a case. Things move rapidly. So, the sort of perception of how slowly government could move, uh, I think once you're in government, you have tremendous ability to make change. Uh, I'm a person who's never going to be satisfied that enough change is being made, but I think it's the it's the capacity of government to really make uh, dramatic changes for people and make it make those uh, those, those uh, pretty impactful. Uh, that's a lesson learned. All right. Uh, Stephen Banks has been the commissioner of the Department of Social Services uh, since, what, 2016? Um, and the Actually, uh, when I came in, I was the DSS and HRA commissioner at the beginning, and then I got okay. DHS. We integrated them in 2017. Ah. Understood. Understood. Okay. Well, uh, you heard it there. It's eight, so. it's eight years. It's eight years anyway. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, thanks for taking the time. We'll be watching to see what you do in your in your next phase here at Paul Weiss and uh, and what the this um, preview of a, a push for a right to housing in New York City will look like and uh, and stay in touch. Uh, thanks for having me as always, and look forward to continuing to work to, work and talk with you. Thanks for the time.